This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, so you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Oh, okay, so uh, Braun looks over the hill. What does he see? All right. Your perception roll isn't great, but you do see spires in the distance and they look like the pictures you saw of the Temple of Elemental Naughtiness. Uh, after your long ordeal, I'm pretty sure your destination is in sight. Uh, Purge looks over at Braun and says, finally, when that wise woman gave us the map, she told us it was this way. And the carnival. Uh, whoa. You know what? <sighs> Misdirected Mark, word scramble. Word scramble. And the Carnival of Contortionists said it was just over those hills. We decided, when we decided to go off to the next town and check on those magic rumors, the barkeep told us it was over here. Don't forget that the uh, talking frog you encountered when you went into the swamps instead of following the map. That's right. He told us the Temple of Elemental Naughtiness was over here, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are finally looking at the spires of the temple in the setting sun, the shadow of the western peaks casts an aura of darkness on this haven of degradation. Hey, did you say the western peaks? Uh, yeah. Remember the barkeep at the Mermaid Scar told you the temples was near the western peaks, and that's how you found the temple. And now you, now you, you, your heroes, you, you know, you guys can assault the temple and free the bound region. The western peaks. Isn't that where they said the manticores were coming from? Well, wait, what? That's right. One of them was got away when we defended the town and headed back towards the western peaks. Yeah, yeah, it, it did. Then we should hunt down their lair so that they don't attack us while we're in the temple later. Great idea. Okay, Phil, Braun and Purge get their bearings and then head out towards the western peaks. Oh, good grief. And with that, welcome to the 426th episode of the Mr. Mark podcast. Tonight we delve into different methods of running games, specifically storytelling and facilitating. Along the way, we'll take suggestions, examples, and questions from the chat room for life before jumping into the after show. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. And I am Old Man Logan. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Before we head into the house misdirected, we have to do our temperature check, make sure everybody's all healthy and stuff, or at least healthy enough to do a show. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. Lord knows, sometimes it's not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, how you doing? <laughs> uh, physically, I am tired and I am sore. Um, I received yesterday, I received my first of the Pfizer uh, vaccination shots. So I am now, uh, for the next three weeks, part of the halfway club. Um, so, yeah, I'm uh, I'm okay. Like, my arm is sore. I am currently a, uh, my body is currently a spike protein factory. Um, making spike proteins for my immune system to recognize and get angry at. Um, but yeah, that was, um, I'll talk about it a little more in the conversation corner, but yeah, my, uh, vaccination, uh, was yesterday and it went well. And, um, in three weeks, uh, I have my follow up for the second Pfizer dose, um, which we'll also, um, talk about, uh, in the conversation corner. Mentally, I'm a little worn down from work, kind of annoyed with some stuff, feeling a little down about work, but, Trying to leave that at work. It's in a somewhat shitty job dragging a little into here. So I'm a little low energy right now, but I'm kind of hoping that'll perk up as we get going into the, into the show. 
We'll drag you along. There we go. Jerry, how you doing, buddy? Uh, well, better now that I'm here. I've, I've been dealing with purchasing two new vehicles for the company and dealing with auto dealerships is a, a annoyance at, 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 at best. And uh, so, but I'm past that. By tomorrow, I'll have all the loans set up. I'll have the vehicles purchased. And I won't have to deal with, with uh, buying a new vehicle for a couple more years. So that's, uh, as somebody who has been a salesman doing with auto, auto sales, man, I find it both insulting and annoying. <laughs> but we're past that. So I'm here. I've got friends. And I'm looking forward to getting my spoons back up and getting some, uh, getting a good punch of adrenaline. So that's me. Jerry, I'm going to tell you, you should tip your camera down just I a little. I was just going to say, I completely forgot during the warm-up. Get, to, yeah, there you, there you go. Perfect. You're getting a little Wilson from... Uh, <laughs> How's that? Um, that's Howdy, cool. neighbor. Yeah. Cool. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Bobo. Right. Uh, I am um, physically not bad. Um, my neck was acting up again today a little bit. Um, it's being annoying because it's, you know, because it has to. Because, you know, I can't have just a day that goes by with nothing. I mean, that would be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm 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 almost 55 years old, and I gotta have I gotta have daily pain and shit. You know, and those are, it's in the bylaws. Something, something got to be hurting. Yeah. Um. So you know, a little little annoyed there. Um. Mentally, um. Not bad. Um. It's um. It's been a pretty good day. It's been a pretty good week so far. Um. I'm I'm a little annoyed at some of the crap that's going on out there <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Which we won't get into because we don't want to drag this segment out, but uh, I'm good. So let's do a show. Let's jump yeah, in. Let's do it. With one thing. And hey, let me start. So I uh, got clued in from, I follow a, a, a Star Trek account called Trek Core on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And they um, put up a, a thing for um, a sale that was going on. And I can't now for the life of me think of the website it was, but um, basically they had a box set of three books of Star Trek Shipyard uh, series. So it's two books of Federation uh, Starfleet um, and pre-Starfleet ships broken down over two chunks of timelines. And then the third book is um, is other Federation members like non, non, uh, non-Starfleet and other other alien races and stuff. Well, Zavi um, is the company that, that is doing it for you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it was a really good deal. It was like the three-book box set. Each book is normally like 25 bucks a piece. Yep. And I got the whole thing, including shipping, for 26 bucks and change. Yep. Nice. Um, so I was like, you know, that, that looks like it's going to be really interesting. So I jumped on that and got it. It, it arrived today and, or yesterday, and, uh, and I flipped through it a little bit. Very interesting if you're into that kind of thing. It's got pictures of the ships and, and different angles and, and, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, um, um, like discussions of like, you know, who was on the ship and what it's, you know, what its missions were and different stuff like that. So, um, that kind of thing. Um, so, um, that was very interesting and I'm sorry I got distracted by a ding and I'm trying to figure out where the ding came from and now I know where Yeah, where did that come from? That's from my Gmail. Uh, somebody pinged me on, uh, on Google Hangouts. So. <laughs> All right. So, that being said, Jerry, what's your one thing? I watched a bizarre movie this weekend called Willy's Wonderland. Um, it is basically Five Minutes at Freddy's, the movie, more or less. Uh, except that it's got Nicolas Cage and it's got a fairly decent plot. It's got some other really interesting actors 
It's got a fun story, and it's got Nicholas Cage drinking lots of energy drinks, playing pinball, and beating the ever-leading crap out of um, demonically possessed animatronic Chuck E. Cheese monster. Um, <laughs> it's 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 better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it happened to be on one. Uh, I belong to a group that has watch parties all the time, and it came up, and I watched it, and it's the fact that he doesn't speak for the entire movie. He does it all just by Nicolas Cage body expressions for his role in the movie. Um, is a lot of fun. And, uh, it, it was just, it was, it's called Willy's Wonderland. Um, if you like kind of, uh, slightly funny action horror, it's not slapstick, but it's, if you like kind of amusing action horror movies, um, it's not really scary unless animatronic monsters scary, in which case it's probably terrifying. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And I, I just, I was, it was a nice little thing to do while I was working on my Eberron campaign this week. So, uh, it, it was a, a delight to watch. It was a pleasant surprise because, you know, with Nicolas Cage, you can get, you know, really good movies like, uh, Leaving Las Vegas or, um, or you can get, um, you know, The Wicker Man. And you never know what you're going to get when you get Nicolas Cage. I was going to go with Ghost Rider, yeah. but sure, that's, Wicker Man will do. It's... Ghost Rider wasn't Nicolas Cage's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Idris Elba was in Ghost Rider also, so, you know, you can't... <laughs> well, that's, that's the fair, second that's one. Fair. The second yeah. one was yeah. horrible. What was that, Bob? He, Idris Elba was in the second Ghost Rider, and that one was it's horrible. A, the first uh, one, <laughs> they, they, were, they were both horrible. They were both really bad. But the second one was worse. All right, Phil, how about you? Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, um, my one thing for this uh, this week is I Hunt. Uh, we did our session zero for our, for our I Hunt game, and... Um, it went really well. So I did, um, I did, I did a little of everything. Uh, we did the gauntlets. Um, I don't think it, it's not really the gauntlets. I, I always forget who to credit for it, but the cats technique, uh, we did that to open up our session zero, which, um, I have become a big fan, uh, in terms of kind of setting expectations of using that tool for kind of talking about what's, what is this game going to be about kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then, um, we we did a, a couple of other things. Just kind of we picked a location where we wanted our eye hunt to take place and a um, and a time period uh, because we had to have kind of the um, discussion like do we want to have a game in modern times that deals with COVID or not? So uh, we decided that our show was filmed all in 2019. Um, even though it's coming out now, it was filmed in 2019, so no one was wearing masks during the um, during no one wears masks during the campaign. So I was I was very okay with that. I thought it was a nice way to, um, I thought it was a nice way to handle it. And then we actually, um, then we jumped into the mechanisms in I Hunt for making characters, which is, uh, you make your you pick out your initial aspects, and then you play, uh, the pilot episode, which is this like, um, it's it's a formulated outline like you still make it your own and you put your own choices of monsters and stuff into it but it's this little four-part um pilot and you don't roll any dice you just talk and play through it and then you use that to start figuring out your skills like where you want to put your uh, various skills what you want your uh remaining aspects to be and uh pick out your stunts so um we did. We came up with our characters. I like them a lot. We had our, um, and then we stopped actually to create a uh, coffee shop, um, uh, because, um, this coffee shop is probably going to be a center point in the game, uh, which included some time to pick out the name of the coffee shop. Um, uh, no middle grounds 
right? That was the name oh, of our coffee shop. Okay. Um, but then we got started. Uh, so our game is taking place in Philadelphia. And uh, our first, the first monster they're going to hunt is uh, a Jersey werewolf. Oh, here. Yep. So imagine like dude bros from the Jersey shore, but also werewolves. Yeah. So that's uh that's going to be uh that's going to be their their first hunt in the pilot. Um but it's a really neat structure. I really like this and actually I, I like it enough that um it's kind of worth stealing for other games. Like it's a really fun way to um So what so what is cats? Oh, do we not have it? I'm sure we can find a link for it. Um but it stands for um oh god, hang on. I should just know to put this out. Yeah, I would have, I would have suggested that if I had thought of it. Say nope, it's okay. Thing. Give me two seconds. Uh, do, 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 do. Cats method. Did I find it? Yes. Okay. Cat stands for concept. Mm-hmm. So at a high level, what is this game about? Aim. Uh, what we're trying to like. What, what is a group? Are we trying to accomplish with the game? Tone. What, you know, what's going to be the tone for our game? Is it funny? Is it serious? Is it dark? Is it light? Uh, and subject matter. What are some of the subjects that we might explore uh, during gameplay? And like, what would people like to see in the game? So we had uh, discussions around all of those things. Uh, and this, Katz uh, gets credited, Patrick O'Leary is the uh, original author, comes from a... Um, 200 word RPG challenge. The gauntlet has adopted this method for introducing games to people. I find it. Um, I find it great. We've done it before, Jerry. I don't know if you remember, but we did it. We've um, done it, but I can never remember what I can never remember what yeah. it stands for. Yeah, we've done it before. And, and that, and, that's, that, that's one of those things I think we need to, like, whenever we bring up a, a topic, we should at least give a brief definition of it. Cause not, oh, yeah. like, like we've done it probably twice and I can never remember where it is. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> a really, it's a really nice technique. Um, I, I have like a little outline I do. Um, to kind of introduce all the parts of it, but in, in doing so, it kind of helps to set expectations so that, you know, we're all kind of aligned to what the game's about. And then I always do. So what I did, and I, I didn't mention it uh, just before, but I do the cats section, then I do safety, then I do character generation. So safety, we're actually using iHunt's built-in safety tools, which has a kind of lines and veils tool called levels. Cool. Uh, which was really good. And uh, instead of the X card, we're going to use the game's built-in um, mechanism called the commercial break, which is kind of a uh, combination of a consent revoking de-escalation uh, and editing tool um, all rolled up in one because you're supposed to treat the game kind of like a um, serialized TV show. So you can at times in the game just go to break. And then if you need to edit anything or remove content, you know, you can do that. Or if you just need to kind of, you know, uh, deescalate, like it was a really intense scene. Let's all come down from it. You know, cool. Rolled commercial. So anyway, it went really well. I really like the um, I really like the characters and um, almost instantly the chemistry started um, with the three characters. So I'm, I'm liking I'm liking I'm liking where it's going. Like it's it's a good it's a it's a good solid start for a new campaign. I totally did not expect to be the more seasoned hunter of the group. <laughs> I had a couple of nudes I got to drag along. Yeah, yeah, this is good. It'll be fun. Yeah, I, you know, it, um, I one of my favorite things is aspect creation because it's a fate game, yep. and just the creativity of some of the aspects. Bob had such a good one. 
uh, for his day job. So Bob's character concept is basically a Peter Parker like character, right? Like if Peter Parker um, had seen Uncle Ben get eaten by a zombie, oh. right? <laughs> Along okay, those lines. Yeah. Instead of getting spider powers, I saw Uncle Ben get killed by uh, by a monster. And so I decided to buff up and go fight monsters because somebody had to do it. Yep. And so which is my, your main aspect. Which is my, Somebody's got to do, do it. it is my is my uh, my 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 I don't even high concept. It. High concept. Thank you. And then for my day job, I said, okay, I'm going to be a freelance photographer because, you know, I'm going to ride this uh, this concept like I stole it because I did. I said, uh, for my day job aspect, I'm going to call it um, with great photos comes mediocre payment. <laughs> yeah. So really good. It was just a really good, solid, fun. Um, I like it. We're just So our next session, we have to kind of finish out playing our pilot. And then uh, I think we'll do a little a little bit of world building and then get into our first uh, hunt. I want to define probably a few more NPCs and stuff outside of the like from either going to come out of the pilot or um, after the pilot. But it's cool. It's a good start. OK, uh, let's roll into announcements. Um, let me start off with a somber one. Um, I think a number of people, if you were on Twitter today, you certainly saw it. Um, Morgan Ellis, a uh, game designer, uh, credited with a lot of uh, work in Fate. Um, really cool person. Um, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people knew Morgan um, on just on Twitter. Uh, a lot of people knew Morgan um, from seeing him at conventions. But Morgan passed away um, today, uh, and that was um, it was really sad. I've I've met Morgan a few times um, at a couple different conventions. Um, got a chance to. Um, uh, play with Morgan once, um, in, uh, uh, PK Sullivan, um, through Rocketeers game at Origins one, uh, I think that maybe that was 2019. I'm losing track thanks to COVID of the exact year, but, um, I, I, I always, um, I always enjoyed Morgan's tweets. There was a whole string of things Morgan had done, um, earlier this, uh, earlier in 2020, uh, just making characters, uh, and just posting, like character creations on Twitter uh, and did a run of uh, TMNT. Uh, he did Roadhogs actually, which was even more fun because he did um, a whole TMNT character plus his badass uh, Mad Max car and all of that. So um, yeah, we're just, you know, uh, hearts go out to Morgan's family and um, to all of Morgan's friends. Um, get a lot of close friends in the community and uh, just, we're just, you know, it sucks. Yeah. And uh, we're just a bit sad tonight yeah. over that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving on uh, from that, um, next mm-hmm. week, we begin the Voyager watch party. Uh, that is going to be starting March 9th on Tuesday after the show. We'll start at 1130 p.m. Eastern uh, with Caretaker, the first two-part episode. Um, we talked about it before. Uh, we'll be doing this in the exact same format we've done TNG and DS9. So we're going to do a week to week, um, week to week viewings, uh, with every Tuesday being a online viewing, uh, together where we watch two episodes. Uh, we're going to go through all seven seasons. Got like a hundred and I forget how many, uh, episodes. It's less than DS9, but more than our TNG tour. Uh, so we're going to uh, get into it. We're going to you guys are going to earn your um, your Delta Quadrant patches um, and we'll take what a is- full we'll take a full watch of, uh, of Voyager and kind of um, I, I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to be interested. This will be my second watching this year uh, and I'm interested to see what I kind of pick up 
um, in my second watching. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's getting started. I will this weekend post a link in Slack and on the forums with the uh, first week of shows. So I will do that. And then that will become a weekly thing. Every Sunday I will post up the next week of shows um, and, and get us started. Uh, and as usual, we'll have, um, if people want to have chats in the chat room, we can, uh, absolutely, um, we can absolutely, you know, have chats about individual episodes, et cetera. So, uh, that's all starting next week. Cool. So clear your schedules. Yeah. Cool. Um, Hey, Jer, uh, can you tell me about, uh, Kickstarter? We have a Kickstarter coming. <clears throat> it is, uh, well, there we go. It's by our own high court member, John LeMay. It's called, uh. Not opening up on me. Spivey uh, inspired by national parks. And it's, there we go. Got it. It's called inspired by national parks. There we go. <clears throat> For some reason I was freezing up. I apologize. It's uh, John LeMay is doing a Kickstarter called Spivey inspired by national parks. And it's going to be five adventures that are going to have uh, battle maps and photos and artwork and videos and monsters and voice acting. And I believe it's going to have table, uh, virtual tabletop, uh, icons and the like for running 5D adventures in actual national parks. Uh, it's on Kickstarter right now. Um, it's almost funded already and you've got 22 days left to go at the time of this. So a week from now, you're going to have about 15 days left. And, um, it's going to be basically adventures about primordials beneath the, the surface. So, uh, nice. And I'm going to. I want to double shout out that this is John LeMay, who's a high court member of the Misdirected mm-hmm. Mark um, uh, Patreons. So um, a little we're going to we're going to be a little extra, a little extra push here. This is one of our own yep. um, who's doing a Kickstarter. So if you can show some love to the project, that would be a huge deal um, to give John that push to get yeah. it over into the uh, into the funded um, into the funded uh, side of Kickstarter. So let's all see what we can do about helping out a mm-hmm. member of our uh, a member of our community. If you go to the actual Kickstarter page, he's got some prototypes you can download and look at what he's got. Um, and uh, he's even got it available for if you're just interested in one or two adventures, you don't have to buy the whole thing; you can just buy pieces of it. So definitely go take a look at it, give it a shot. Cool, plus absolutely. You, plus, you can play Prairie Dog people, which is always cool. Yep. <laughs> Prairie Dog. Prairie Dogs. All right. I guess that means that we are ready for the feature segment. So, Phil, gird yourself. Oh, yes, thank you. Storyteller and facilitator, two sides of the same coin. How are you running your game? Are you telling a story? Are you facilitating a story? Are you doing a little of both? We're going to talk it all about it tonight in the workshop. Don't suck. Yay. Yay. I got to take a sip and then I'll start us off. <laughs> All right. Uh, this past week on Friday, I wrote an article for Gnome Stew uh, that is exactly about tonight's topic. Uh, and I like writing articles for Gnome Stew uh, because it's fun, um, but it's only 1,500 words and it's not interactive. So it's just 1,500 words of me talking about this topic. So I thought it'd be more fun um, because we have a podcast to just take the topic and throw it on the show. Uh, and, um, and expand upon it and actually kind of look at it in a, a couple different, like a little bit differently, but also to get our own feedback in the second section, yeah. um, on it. So, uh, Jerry and Bob were in and, uh, here we are. 
Well, I think it's going to be interesting. This is something that's kind of near and dear to me is uh, how we run games. And the next topic is going to be about storytellers and story facilitators. We're going to look at what they are, what they do, how the games they play, and how groups interact with them, and how they kind of blend into each other. <clears throat> but in order to do that, we're going to have to set our definition. So, Phil, what are the storyteller and the facilitator? Here, let me do this thing here. Okay. Behold! You are in the presence of Definition Panda. All right. Neither of these terms are actually set in the RPG vernacular, so uh, we are going to define them here for the sake of our segment tonight. You're free to carry these definitions onward, but um, know that they're pretty much, you know, being set up inside the confines of this discussion, uh, and your mileage may vary when you take them out of this uh, discussion. So the storyteller, the storyteller is a type of GM who crafts a story that they want to share with their players at the table. Um, the player characters are the protagonists of the story, uh, as the storyteller kind of guides the players through uh, the plot. The defining trait of the storyteller is the idea that um, the scenario they're running is a story that they're telling to the players, and that at some level, whether they hold on to it um, loosely or tightly, they have some idea of the outcome um, of the story when it concludes. And their job is to make that story unfold and guide the players through it. Um, and like I said, they often have some idea of how the story will end. Uh, but as we'll talk about as we get a little further into this topic, how much they hold on to that is going to be kind of a determination um, of what kind of storyteller they are. Uh, the story facilitator is the type of GM who sees their job as helping the group as a whole create a story through play. Uh, they often have an idea of a plot or a challenge to kind of get things started, but not much beyond that. Uh, through play, characters will figure out how to resolve the plot or challenge, and the GM's there to engage the rules as well as the narrative to add things to keep the game developing and keep it from, you know, going stale or, you know, running out of steam. The defining trait of the facilitator is the idea that they have an idea of how things will start, but are totally open to how the game's going to end. They don't really focus on the ending because the ending's a thing that happens um, at the table. And so their job is to set things up and then make way for the players to determine how things are going to end. Um, and they're equally surprised in many cases as the players at how the story turns out. So... For tonight, think of these as preferences. Think of these as approaches that a GM might have. I don't necessarily think of them as like a GM is one of these things. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. So is one of these better than the other, Jerry? Is being a facilitator in today's type of gaming better than being a storyteller? Uh, not at all, because it's not really a versus kind of thing. It's not one or the other. There are merits and flaws in both these approaches. Um, <clears throat> both can give you exciting adventures, they can give you memorable games, they can give you good role-playing, um, but you can do one or the other or both and blend them together. In addition, there's a lot of GMs that are bad at one or the other, and if that happens, you can result in horrible games if you try to run a facilitated game if you're really more of a storyteller or vice versa. So we're going to talk about examples of the good and the bad of both these approaches and then talk about how to blend them. So, Phil? 
Yeah. So like if you're a good storyteller, right, you are creating a, a captivating narrative that's exciting and entertaining. Um, you can have like really intricate plots, subplots, twists, those kinds of things, things that you've kind of planned out to um, reveal to the players like, oh, the players will be uh, surprised when, oh, the you know, the players are going to love this when, you know, the, this twist kicks in kind of thing. Um, and as a good storyteller, the characters have ample agency um, and any alterations or deviations from the story the GM had in mind the this the good storyteller will incorporate that and adapt the story you know as they go between sessions that kind of thing right now, there are bad storytellers and bad storytellers almost always end up with what people think of traditionally as the railroad the bad railroad um, this is where the story is going to override the agency of the characters to maintain their own story um, you're going to have situations where the players want to do something, but they can't because it wrecks the GM story. This is going to inv involve things like um, the NPC who simply can't be killed, um, players not being able to take any side stories, that sort of thing. And when that happens, you end up with a, with a bad game, or at least a game that's less fun for a lot of players. Yeah, I agree. Um, a good facilitator, switching over to the good side now, a good facilitator mm -hmm. initiates play with an exciting issue or plot to get things going. Uh, they engage the players to find out what they're going to do. Uh, and along the way, they use the rules of the game to keep the flow of the game going, as well as filling in any additional elements, locations, NPCs, uh, as needed during play. Uh, and if things stall out on the player side, they'll jump in with ideas and action to keep that flow going. Um, the story organically unfolds until it reaches a logical conclusion. Oh, if you have a bad facilitator, they're going to be unprepared. They're going to bring very little to start off the game, and they're going to keep relying on the players to keep things moving. They're going to push a lot of the work onto the players to make things happen instead of working with the players to have things happen. And they're not really going to manage the flow of the game. And when that happens, the game just stalls or loses direction because it feels like there's there's nothing planned and that there's really no adventure except just people wandering around. And that can lead to games that just leave people frustrated. Yeah, and I think that... Um... You know, like a lot of times we see people like, you know, boo to the storyteller and, you know, the facilitator, you know, yay to the facilitator when um, I don't like I don't often think that that's the problem. Right. I, I, I will say I think both of these are completely valid approaches if done um, well. Mm -hmm. But I think what happens is a lot of times a GM who is who prefers one approach plays a game that winds up. Um, requiring the other approach. Right. And when that mismatches is where, you know, we, we get this like ill fit. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> for example, you have a GM who's a very good storyteller with structured adventures, structured stories, was get to the beginning, middle and end. And then they try to use that approach and try to run fiasco, which, which should be as freeform as possible. It's not that the GM themselves is bad, but rather that sort of game requires a different approach. And of course, you're using it's not going to be in alignment with the rules of the game itself. So we don't say that it's a bad approach. We simply say that a better approach for Fiasco would be a facilitator. So, which is only true of the concept of that game and not RPGs in general. Lots of RPGs work very well with a storyteller, and lots of RPGs work very well with a facilitator. So, Phil? <laughs> so, if neither approach is good or bad, are you a storyteller or a facilitator, Phil? Yeah. Um. <laughs> so... 
Uh, there are no absolutes to this, right? Um, there is, there's never one or the other. You are never a facilitator. You are never a storyteller, right? You are mm-hmm. always some blend of both of these things. Yeah. Um, but it probably means that it's possible to have a stronger preference for one of these than the other. Um, and to simplify that concept, um, and I think it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's going to work for the discussion tonight. Like we can say that your GMing style is some percentage of storyteller, some percentage of facilitator. And to be honest, it's very rare you're going to find somebody who's just 50, 50 down the line. They're going to be like 60, 40 or 70, 30. They're going to have a stronger preference for one or the other, but they're going to blend the two together. Um, <clears throat> in some cases, you might find somebody who's at one extreme or the other, but every RPG has some amount of storytelling and every RPG has some amount of facilitating. So you can't really get away from one completely. Yeah. And, and your, your preference, right? Your, the higher percentage, your, your preference for this is going to come from how you as a GM derive enjoyment from GMing. If you're a storyteller with a strong preference, your joys are to come from sharing the stories you're creating with your players and seeing how your players deal with the world and the plots and stories that you created for them. As a facilitator, your joys are to come from the act of creation at the table seeing how the improv process takes place and creates something from everybody's ideas together. Yeah. And again, you're likely both of these. Um, So you're even getting pleasure from both of these, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not that if your preference is storyteller, you only enjoy the storyteller part of the game and the um, uh, what's called and, and the facilitator part, you gain no pleasure from you're going to get pleasure from both of these, but knowing which one is the stronger preference Yep. is going to inform you of how you more enjoy to run a game, right? What brings you more enjoyment as well as um, the types of games and the groups that are also going to play into that. Yeah. Um, so Jerry, tell me how your preferences help to determine the types of games that you'll enjoy more than others. All right. And some of this is going to be based on the games you play. As you mentioned earlier, if you ask example, some games are written with a certain GMing approach in mind. Not all games are designed for one approach or the other. There are definitely games that fit one approach better. So we're going to talk a little bit about what these games might look like. Yeah, so a game that's good for storytellers, right? A game that these kinds of games um, probably fall into more what we would call the traditional, right? The trad category, um, which really just means that narrative control remains mostly centered with the GM. Right. They, that means that the GM sets the scenes. They close the scenes. They interpret the outcome of dice rolls. Right. They, they, they do what we would do, what we imagine like in most traditional role playing games. So, you know, games easily like D and D, Call of Cthulhu, those kinds of things, um, are very traditional style games. Uh, and the, and the reason these games work out well for storytellers is that it puts the narrative control and most of the narrative control in the hands of the, in, of the GM which um, lets them steer the narrative of the game and allows them to bring the story out to the players through play. Now, games that are good for facilitators are going to be games where the narrative control is much more distributed. Players have more abilities to set scenes, they can create twists, they can interpret outcomes. Games like PBPA, Dungeon World, Mask, things like that. Uh, they even enjoy games where there's no GM role whatsoever. Games like Fiasco or games like Turning Point. Games that have a more distributive narrative control are going to allow everyone to be able to contribute to the story. And this makes the GM a, a GM a true facilitator. Yeah. So as you come to understand your preference of 
storyteller and facilitator, um, where you're getting your enjoyment from, the question you got to start asking yourself is, are you playing games that make that happen? Like, are you playing the games that align to where you're deriving most of your of your enjoyment? And it's possible on preference for one approach, but play a game that supports the other. Uh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so, Phil, how does the group that we play with also tie into our preferences as GMs? Uh, yeah. Well, your players also have preferences um, in, in terms of these two things, right? Your players have a preference about this too, right? They may be totally, like, they may totally love uh, participating in that story that's being told to them, right? They may, or they may want to create everything on the spot. Um, conversely, they could get bored when a game is um, a structured story, um, or they could go into a cold sweat if they're required to make up things on the fly in the game. So now imagine as the GM, your preference sets the tone for the game, and the game you're playing may even reinforce that. What happens when those two things are not in alignment with the player's preferences? Then you need to know what kind of players you've got. So what kind of players enjoy storytelling more? These are players who enjoy playing at the character level and not at the story level. Um, they're going to be players who are not comfortable with improvising content. They're players who want to relax a bit and have the story come to them and then they have them react to it. Uh, they're players who are basically going to want to follow a thread and follow a story. Um, what kind of players enjoy facilitating more, right? These are players who have an equal or stronger interest in the story of their characters, right? These are, are people who think less about, um, so they think more about like what would be cooler for the story to happen to my character, even if that puts my character in a terrible place, right? Cause that's just going to be more fun for my, you know, like that's going to be more fun for the story. Um, and less about like being inside their character's head. So sometimes these players um, tend to bounce between those two levels, start to refer to their character, sometimes in the first person, sometimes in the third person, right? Like as it's more convenient. Um, they could be players who just like to create things during the game. Like they have ideas about how, you know, things should work and they want to be able to contribute to the to the narrative, to the plot, that kind of thing. Um, and they could also be other GMs uh, because GMs normally do this even in traditional games. So they may be um, other GMs that might dig um, being, you know, having and playing in a game that's more facilitated. So like we talked about with the games you're playing, you always want to look at the preferences of the people in your group. Yeah. So it's very possible, it's possible you have a group, have a group that wants to want to. You guys are like colorblind tonight. <laughs> it's very possible you have a group that wants one approach um, and your enjoyment of gaming comes from the other approach. That is definitely That's, possible. That is definitely possible. Bob and I have been there. <laughs> All right. Before mm -hmm. we break, can you crystallize the importance of these approaches? Yeah. So we're really what we're talking about, right, is we're talking about um, we're talking about these two things and we're talking about putting things into alignment. Right. So in all GMs, there's some amount of storyteller. There's some amount of facilitator. And we're going to derive enjoyment from one of these approaches much more than the other. Yeah. And it's important to know what mix of these we are so that we know where that enjoyment's coming from. Yeah. And some of these games are going to be best played with one approach or the other. If you run games that match our approach, we're going to derive more enjoyment from it. Right. And players have their own preferences when it comes to these approaches. If we run games for players who match that approach, they're going to have more fun. And in return, so will we. Mm -hmm. So this is the first part of our segment. We're going to check in the chat room for a moment. But first, Bob's going to tell us about another show on the Misfit and Mark Network. 
Yes, the uh, recently renamed Mastering Dungeons, although probably not that recently anymore. Mastering Dungeons with RPG veterans <laughs> and game designers Teos Abadai and Sean Merwin, who look at the game and the hobby of D&D from a variety of viewpoints, reporting the news, understanding the business, reviewing the products, and illuminating the design. Whether you're a fan, a player, a DM, or a designer, Sean and Teos cover topics of interest to you. New ad copy for this. I love it. <laughs> well, when there's some new ad. We got to make new ad copy for a couple of these. Yeah, but that's all right. How's so, our chat room tonight? Yeah. Oh, they're they're <laughs> engaged. Uh, we we had a visit from uh, from Chris, who has since uh, ducked out to watch TV with the misses. Uh, Jared popped in to say hello. He's not uh, unfortunately in a very good headspace to participate much tonight. Nope, uh, definitely understand. But. Um, during the course of the discussion, uh, um, Queen Senda said that um, while discussing this, I think we can also reference the reactive and proactive uh, sides of GMing as well. And that made me think mm-hmm. of, uh, of that typical chart with the plus, where one yeah. quadrant is this, one quadrant is that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, facilitator, storyteller, proactive, reactive, and where that Oh, that'd together. be fun to do. We can do a little Punnett square action yeah. on that. Is that what that's called? I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't figure mm-hmm. it. In in genetics, it is. In genetics, it's a Punnett square. So I thought that would be um, an interesting. Uh, yeah. Exercise. She's yeah, I think I think it'd be very neat. <laughs> She's putting one together already. Yeah. See, there we go. <laughs> that's Hard at work on it. Um, but yeah, um, Chris was actually tagging uh, uh, what he thought um, what he thought people's percentages were uh, as we were going through. He thinks you're pretty much 50-50 or as close to 50-50 as you can get, Phil. My assessment's a little different because we're going to get to that in the next segment, yeah. segment but it's not off by much. Um, it's not off by much. I definitely um, I, I definitely have um, likes on both sides of that. But mm-hmm. I, I will also state that over the years, um, my preferences for those have changed. They're, and I think, do we did we leave ourselves open a question for that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. We did. Okay. So I, I won't go into that in this yeah, segment, but um, yeah, no, but, but yeah, that that's, um, and that's probably another part about it that we didn't really touch on in the first part is that like your tastes in these things can totally change. It's a um, fluid thing. Yeah. So one, it can change just because your way of deriving enjoyment in, in the game changes. It can, so that could be a permanent thing. Like for me, not a permanent, but like a long-term thing. Like for me, from 2010 till now, my preference for how I like the game has changed a bunch. But saying that, um, if you are particularly into a certain type of game and you are getting your um, enjoyment from the game, it can actually change that. So, for instance, I was a huge fan of our Tales from the Loop game, which was a way more storyteller game than it was facilitating Uh and it was totally fine to be way more into storytelling for that campaign uh because the the act of playing that game was so enjoyable yeah like so it was so these things aren't i guess here's what i'm learning here's what i've learned coming up on 10 plus years of, of gming advice right I'm always afraid when we name these things out like this, that people think that these things are either absolutes or etched in stone or all of these things. And the truth of the matter is over my time, all this stuff is mutable, right? Like, like my preference in gaming changed over the years. 
But if I play a game like uh, Knights Black Agents, the, um, Tales from the Loop, like then I wind up playing it like way more storyteller. And I'm okay with that for a while. And, you know, and then um, something like, uh, and we'll talk about this in a second, but something like Forbidden Lands is like a very traditional game, but it actually winds up being like a half facilitator game for me in like a really interesting mix of storyteller and facilitator that entertains me. So none of these things are absolutes. It's really just kind of um, having an awareness. Oh, as I say that, I now have the idea for my next GM book, which is going to be like kind of understanding like your GMing style and that how much of that goes into what you enjoy about playing, um, what games you should play, how you should play, like, like who you should be playing with, like those kinds of things, like, like finding our, like finding our inner joy in gaming. Like I'm going to get all philosophical or something (laughs) about it, but I, but I, but I think it's true. I think that like, I think that we, um, I think that sometimes we miss the mark that sometimes we're more concerned about what, what people expect us to do. than we really reflect on what really, um, what really is giving us, um, what really is giving us joy about the, about our, about what we get out of the game. Yeah. This might be my, if, if, if never unprepared was my love letter to getting things done, Perhaps this next book will be my love letter to um, Marie Kondo. The, um, there you go. You know, does <laughs> does this game does this game bring you joy? Let it go. <laughs> no, just let it go. Like I'm getting nothing from this. Let it go. Let it oh, I may have to go read that book and then and then kind of ruminate on <laughs> on role playing and just you know, I have some thoughts. I'm having having some feels about this philosophically. You like you could use another book from Phil. Mm-hmm. I I like writing them. <laughs> I like writing go. them. It'd be kind of fun to do another GMing book. And I and I own a publishing company. What? It's That's almost right. like you That's could right. like you know do the whole thing soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. Feel like I feel like I probably feel like I probably could. I do need an editor. <laughs> Ers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all right. Uh, all right, well, cool. I'm I'm gonna stop talking about that. I'm gonna just ponder that for a little bit. Well, that's a good time for us to slide back into the second segment of this show, which is our favorite, the round table, where we grab three questions and we throw them out, and uh, and then we beat them around uh, like you know volley volleyball or a badminton or tennis or something. I'm a little nervous where you were going with that analogy, but thank you. That's much better. We bat it around mm-hmm. like a shuttlecock, like, like a shuttlecock yeah, is what yeah, you're trying to something say. Along those lines. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun word to say. Question number one. In terms of a GM, in terms of being a GM, where do you rate your storyteller-facilitator mix? Jerry? Uh, I think I'm about 40-60, and it's going to depend on what game I'm running and who I'm running for. Um, I'll be honest, I like to have some idea of where I want my plot to go. I, I'm like, okay, I want to have a murder mystery, and I know that this is going to be the bad guy, and this is who we killed, and this is why he's doing it, and this is what his end, what his end goal is supposed to be. But aside after that, I'm going to leave it up to the players to kind of figure out what happens in there. Um, some things are going to go on in the background, depending on what the heroes do. And we're just going to go where it's going to go. Um, I will sometimes run more structured things. Um, for example, I'll sometimes take an existing module and strip it down. You know, I, I've got a bunch of scenes where things are going to go, but how the players get there, what they do, 
um, what order things happen in might change drastically. People who have played games with me in modules that are professionally written, they find out that they're all over the place because the players decide to do something different. I'll let them go there. You know, they can go off to the Western mountains and go hunt manticores for a while if they want. Um, and I've had entire campaigns that have changed because the PCs acted in the first story arc. Uh, I had, an, I had a entire campaign and in week one, one of the players decided to seduce and then, uh, completely romance the main bad guys like lieutenant. And that changed the scope of the game entirely from that point on because the players were now involved with the bad guy in a totally different way. Um, and that's okay. So, uh, I'm not quite as freeform where I'm just going to come to the table and say, okay, you guys are in a city. What do you want to do? Um, I'm going to have some plot involved, but, uh, I like more and more when the players take actions, make changes, uh, set things that are real in the game, that sort of thing, and move from there. So, um, that's how we go. How about you, Phil? Yeah, um, me. You know, it's funny. I think I'm also a 4060 storyteller facilitator. Uh, and, and I'll, and I'll hint to the, I'll hint to the last question. Uh, I was not always that way. Um, actually, that number has shifted quite a bit over the years. Um, but I, um, I actually really like, um, I like story as the connective tissue between sessions. So I like, uh, I like coming up with a cool starting point. Um, then I don't want to know a thing about how we're going to get to the end of the problem until we get to the table. Then I like to take whatever happened and stitch that into how that's going to play out to the next story, the future story, how that affects the arc or whatever. Um, but what I really, um, what I, where I enjoy my, where I derive my joy in at the table is that I really don't want to know what's going to happen when I'm playing. I, I want to sit down, present a problem and like just set the players loose. And then I, I really like for me, a successful game is um, a successful game that a GM is when it ends. And, and I know Bob's heard this phrase before, and I think Jerry has too, where it ends and I look and I laugh and I go, ha, I did not expect that that's how this was going to go down tonight. Mm -hmm. Any one of those derivative phrases, right? Like to me, that is the most fun when I am like honestly surprised about what happened at the table, whether it be somebody said something, whether it be um, somebody took an action that would like, you know, like in our DCC game, when, when Jim got that great role and um, in that last session and, you know, pinned that, Tarrasque-esque thing into the, you know, like down in the pit with his word of command. And I was like, wow, it's totally not how I was thinking this fight was going to go. And I was yeah. like thrilled with it, right? Like, yeah. I don't care that you guys beat it up in like, you know, five turns instead of like 20 turns. I thought it was great. Like, I was genuinely surprised. And it's my reason why I love PBTA games, because I love that moment of um, a seven to nine comes up and somebody's like, Oh, uh, I'm going to take uh, offer me a worse deal, Phil. <laughs> right. And I'm like, uh, um, OK. And, you know, and like spit something out or even on a six minus. Not that I like making um, necessarily making moves, but I like when like something falls short and it's like, OK, well, how do we just make how do we just make the situation worse than it already is? Right. Like, yeah. what can we add on to it? Um, I love that. So for yeah. me. I say 40, 60, but there are probably times where that goes 30, 70. Yeah. Um, but I do love a good story, right? So I think mm -hmm. 40, 60 is a fair assessment because um, 
once we get away from the table, then I'm back to, okay, well, how does this play out plot wise? Yeah. How does this play out with NPCs? That kind of thing. So there's, there's still a storyteller part of me. Now I, I will say like Jerry game has a big influence on this mm-hmm. and I'm trying to stay away from that third question. <laughs> have various games and groups. Yep. Okay. I'm going to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that number can shift temporarily for the right game. Like I said earlier in the break. I'd like to add something in here. I think it also has to do with whether or not it's a campaign or a one shot. Because I think one shots may lean you in either direction, depending on what you're doing too. Oh, I, I've run one shots in both ways. I've run yeah. one shots as the storyteller, like yep. behold my, uh, behold my masterpiece of one shot story. Um, you know, I hope you enjoyed your experience and I have, you know, um, also shown up with a, you know, an index card and been like, cool, let's kick this thing, you know, and just see where it goes. Like I've done both. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, but currently my enjoyment comes out of, um, primarily comes out of facilitation. The amount of time I spend prepping a game is far less like than what I, like what I spend actually playing it. Mm Mm-hmm. Babo, you have not been behind the screen in years, have but been you have been before. So long. Um, way back in the day, I was a, I was a storyteller, and damn it, if I wasn't going to tell that story, and you oh. players aren't getting in my way, and uh, those are I lessons remember. that were very hard learned. That you can't do that. <laughs> it's a- I, I I remember in particular being in the basement of our. Um, our West Seneca apartment playing Palladium one night where boy, I like, I tried something. Um, and you were like, Nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, that was bad GM, Bob, bad. <laughs> I was not, I was not good. Um, but I was, I was determined to tell the story. <laughs> um, I like to think that now I would be way more of a facilitator, but, I put numbers in the, in the show notes. Those numbers are meaningless because I really, (laughs) until I sit down, like, like we just said, depending on what style of game it is and who I'm at the table with and all that stuff like that. Um, I could still be leaning heavily storyteller Mm -hmm. just in a more efficient and, and player friendly manner. Um, so you don't know. Um, but yeah, I used to be, I used to be the, the storyteller, bad bad man now you now i tease you about that but at that same period of time so was i like i was like drunk on storytelling during during that time period which i'm going to save a little bit more for the next question yeah. but like you were not alone in that like i was also a ridiculous storyteller um i was just uh, GM. worse at it than you <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know i was I, I was smoother it wasn't that i like look yeah. it wasn't like i wasn't manipulating you guys during the game i just had gotten really good at doing it where no one <laughs> yeah. noticed um yeah and that's you know things like schrodinger's encounters and things like that um <laughs> i think it also i think it also depends on um when and how you got into gaming i think that um back in the 70s and 80s um we were kind of taught the storytelling method of GMing and the idea that the GM was all powerful and the players were really just there to ride along with you for a while was part of what we did. And then as games got more sophisticated and gamers got more experienced and we started to bring in more and more people that were um, from more diverse groups, we started to see better uh, expansion of game types. And we started to see facilitating being offered. And then, of course, there's a lot of games that are written for it now where I think a game like Fiasco or Dungeon World is a lot different than 
you know, second edition D and D. Yeah, I mean, I would almost postulate to, I would almost postulate that the Forge movement um, was a reaction against um, mm-hmm. the more storytelling tradition. And you're right, Jerry. Like I came up, I mean, I came up oh, through yeah. classic D and D. I came up through the, you know, behold, I am GM. You mm-hmm. have no other GMs before me. Um, you know, unless you're playing with the other guys down the road and then, you know, no GMs when you're here before me kind of thing. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I came up through that storyteller thing and it wasn't like that wasn't reinforced. I mean, look, there wasn't an internet. So probably a guy two towns over was facilitating the shit out of his BX game. But like I wasn't because I was taught by like kind of this maniacal killer GM, you know, who ruled his table with, you know, you know, with a heavy hand. And so, you know, I was a bit better than that but i was still you know massive storyteller yeah. um mm-hmm. and not facilitator and then your only outlet you know at that point was uh dragon um yeah and dragon you know had articles about storytellers and and jokes yeah. about you know that classic trope of like oh i prepped all this stuff and then my players hung out in the tavern like that trope comes from somewhere yeah right yeah. and it comes from it comes from the idea that the storyteller has prepped all this adventure and then the players have gone, you know, basically to do something that wasn't prepped. And now the storyteller is in this conundrum. And that's why facilitator facilitator players laugh at that trope because they're just like, whatever, guess we're, you know, we're going to do a story about the tavern today. Yep. Um, And again, you know, and there was for some time, I will say that, you know, I felt very pressured in the, in the 2010s, um, I felt very pressured to um, get out of storytelling and get into facilitation um, that, you know, that you weren't a cool GM, you know, if you were mm-hmm. still doing like the full storyteller thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, when I started really working on facilitation. And I don't know if that was necessarily uh, fair. <laughs> I think that was a trend. Um Right, and I'm I gonna, think that, I'm you know, the end result, there. what's that, Bob? I'm going to snip you there because we're starting to beat this question. Okay. All right. Let's move, we on. move on to question number two. So, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for intervening. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. Those all right. Questions question. Two. Question two is Bob has saved the day. Um, as a player, what kind of storyteller facilitator do mix do you like in your GM? Yeah. So, again, with the caveat that, the, the, boy, there are so many things that go into the the, the fluctuation of this, I would definitely prefer someone more on the facilitator side. I like to lean that way because that gives you more player agency, yada, 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 and all those things. Um, that I think is the sweet spot for me. Um, all the other stuff still works, but leaning towards facilitator, I think I would prefer a, a, a GM that leans that way. Mm-hmm. That's my thought. As a, uh, as a, person who gms 90 percent of of the time and like plays 10 percent of the time i also needed i also need to play with a gm who's a facilitator right like i i I can't not create stuff when i'm in an rpg like if i play an only story based game like i will lose my mind like i i will become so frustrated because i will want to keep trying to but what about this? What if this happened? What if you like, so if there's, if I'm just playing with a GM who's doing that yeah. or in a game that does that, like I'm much better. Yeah, I, may, I will level out. <laughs> you may as well play a test adventure at that point. So. Uh, yeah. But I mean, there, I mean, again, there's no wrong, bad fun here. So no. there are people, there are people who love like sitting in and playing a story. Um, yeah. I'm just not one of them because I'm so hands on that I just like, I can't, 
I get fidgety. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jer? Um, I like a GM who's got a plot in mind and how they would resolve it, but flexible to change the heroes make their actions. Um, I've been in games with GMs where it's obvious that the GM had a start and had a finish, but had no idea how to get us there, and partway through has no idea what the players are supposed to be. They have a, they created a problem that they themselves didn't find a solution for. And that sometimes happens where you get to the point where you see um, that you had a problem. So I want a GM who's going to let us be flexible, but also has some idea where things are going. Um, I played a game a couple of years ago where we were part of a group of investigators in a town. And at least it felt this way that the GM didn't know how to give us any of the clues or what the clues were because we had five outlets to follow. We followed all five. At the end of those five outlets, we had no idea what was going on or who the bad guy was, except for the fact that it wasn't those five people. And that was several weeks of exploring. And so it didn't feel like, well, the GM was giving us lots of room to explore. It didn't feel like we had any direction. And so as a result, we had to basically kind of beat stick it at the end to figure out what was going on. Mm. Um, and that can be frustrating. At that point, you feel like while you've got lots of flexibility, you also feel like nothing you do matters. And oh, yeah. That's I think the that worst. Part, I think that part of being a facilitator is to make sure that the player's actions matter. Not every single action, but what they're doing has some effect on what's going on, both in the world and also in the story. Even, um, even yeah. if, and I'll say this, I'll, yeah. I just take oh, a yeah. phrase on to that. Oh, go on, even, please do. Even if that complicates the story you had in mind. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, especially if it complicates the story you have in mind. If you've got the right group of players, that's excellent. Um, yeah. And that, that's just that I, I want to see that sort of thing. So I want a facilitator, but I want a facilitator with a goal in mind. Um, and they have to be flexible enough to move things around. If they had a, a three-day time clock on it and the players are having a lot of fun adventuring with something, and that time clock suddenly goes from three days to five days, that's fine. Unless it's vitally important that three days is it. Yeah. Um, in which case, you've got to let the players know that three days is it. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. I want a GM who's going to be have a have a loose framework, maybe a flow chart um, with lots of open ends on it. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the Betty White theory, you know, in the Golden Girls, they often had spaces where they just said, Betty White tells a St. Olaf story. <clears throat> and that's it. And that's kind of what I want from a GM uh, is they know something's going to happen. And then at this point, they're going to put the players in that situation and shenanigans will ensue and the players may come up with something. Um, and, you know, I've been in games where it's also obvious that the players came up with a better plot than the GM. The GM decided to just ride it. Sure. Um, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Because like you said, the GM was excited by where things are going and didn't really what was was having more fun with it. So go with it. That's what I want. I want a GM who's going to facilitate with us, but have give, have a goal in mind and something that they can kind of give us direction and we do kind of get lost. So, all right. And that brings me to question three, which is, how do the various games and groups have influenced your mix in the past and in the present? So, Phil? Hacking my knuckles on this one. All right. You've been chomping at the bit all evening. Go for yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, because well, I mean, these are the things that kind of lurk around in my head yeah. when, I, when I come up with these I, when I come up with these topics, right? Because having, yeah. 40, having 40 years of gaming experience gives you this great lens to kind of look at, like, you know, what you've done over time. Um, look, I was like a 90-10 storyteller. Um, by the time, by the time Bob found, like I found Bob, like I was, and was, and I was bad. Like I, like, here's the thing. I not only derived my enjoyment from telling a story, but I started after a while deriving my own personal enjoyment 
from guessing what the players were going to do and just writing that into the adventure. <laughs> like I would like I gotten good enough to like kind of figure everyone else out. And then if that failed, I had gotten really good at creating the illusion of free choice where a lot of times like it wasn't a free choice. Like, and I, you know, refer to Schrodinger's encounters, right? Like this encounter, like no matter what door you pick, I know which encounter is coming next, right? Like those are things that I got like really good at doing um, mm -hmm. that allowed me to keep, like I could tell the story I wanted to tell. And I was kind of drunk on that for a while. Like, you know, behold <laughs> this master story I have crafted and like enjoy, like, you know, as I set it out before you. Um, and it was a huge ego, like it was an ego problem kind of thing. Um, I have since then, um, over time, uh, have moved into, um, more of a, um, servant leadership mindset when it comes to gaming, which is like, my job here is really to make sure we're all going to have a good time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I, I'm very much now about, um, let me lead us through an enjoyable experience together. Uh -huh. Right. I, I will, I I'm happy to lead and facilitate this game, but my enjoyment of it is that everybody enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, that's where I get like, that's where I get my enjoyment now um, from gaming. Wonka and that's a song. very different. What's up, Bob? I say cue the Willy Wonka song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's a very different, um, it's a very different point of ego. When I was in my twenties and thirties, like I had, um, like I had a real ego and control, um, problem. And in my late thirties and into my forties, um, like I saw what the, I saw the bad sides of what that was. Um, and as a whole personality kind of changed my personality over, um, to, you know, to something that was more, how can I help other how can I help others have um, a, a, you know, a good time? How can I help others period? That mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it's how I wound up being a project manager. Um, it has a lot to do with some other areas of my life. Um, has a lot to do with my game mastering. Um, but I've, you know, I've read books on servant leadership and I, you know, very much like I'm very much in that mindset. So for me um, over time, my own personality, because my own personality changed the way I derived enjoyment, from GMing changed, um, which then fell in line with um, what games brought me uh, enjoyment, which Bob knows this from our own shared game history, led to the breakup of one of our gaming groups mm -hmm. and starting a whole new gaming group um, because that game, the rest of that gaming group, those players did not want to play facilitated games. They wanted to play story based games. Um, as Bob and I were kind of changing styles yep, and mm -hmm. um, we don't play with those people anymore. They're still playing games. We just, we're not gaming with them. Um, so, you know, it's an, it's an absolute um, truth that your style, like at times will not mesh with groups. And sometimes that is not able to be reconciled. Mm -hmm. um, other times you can just fix things. Like the reason we're not playing Numenera right now was Bob, Tony Glenn and I were playing it. It's a very traditional game. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a quite lovely game. I think it's a one of the best games a new GM could run. Um, but it is a very much a storyteller kind of game. And the facilitator me, there's plenty of facilitating in that game. 
there's no mechanics for it. Like, um, and I eventually just got kind of bored running it. I was like, mm, I think I've kind of, you know, spanned all the mechanics of this game. Like, that's interesting. I need something more fiddly. And, um, you know, having just started I Hunt and kind of rereading and reminding myself, like, re- you know, reviewing Fate reminded me, I'm like, right, I fucking love Fate, right? Like, every time I wander away from it, like, I come back and I'm like, oh, right, I fucking love this system. Like, it has just the right mix of of mechanics and story. Like, it has some story, but teleparts, but it's um, heavy facilitation. Fits me very well. So that was just a case where I had to say to my gaming group, I'm like, I'm not I'm not getting not getting the joy like we're we're playing cool stories, like we're telling cool stories at the table, but not getting joy out of out of the way I'm running this game. You need to get and the joy. Have, yeah, and having very good players, they were like, cool, let's jettison that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, cool, let's jettison, like let pick up another game. Let's let's go find something else. So um yeah, absolutely. Games have influenced this. Um and like I've said, and I'll just and I'll keep it short and I'll kick it over. Um my um 40 60 or sometimes 30 70 facilitate you know storyteller facilitator mix um can change if i'm playing a mystery game mm-hmm. um i don't like facilitated mysteries as much as i like story told mysteries facilitated mysteries have their their thing and you can do them they sometimes come out weird and if i'm going to do a mystery i'm like nope fuck it i'll write the thing mm-hmm. i will facilitate the part where you find clues but I'm going to write a thing about what happened. You're going to find the clues in a more facilitated manner, but it's we're, like, I know what happened. You're, we're not working to find out together. Like you're just going to work to figure it out while I'm running it. And I like that tales from the loop was like that. And so was, um, Knights black agents. And I was very comfortable running those for, for periods of time, because to me, that's, I get more enjoyment out of a mystery like that. Okay. I'm good. Jer. All right. Well, I'm glad you hit on that because I was actually going to talk about the same thing mystery. So I'm just gonna, uh, that's the one thing I think is really important is that uh, uh, if I'm going to run anything where you're resuming a mystery, it's going to be much more heavily story told because I've got, number one, I'm not good at mysteries. And number two, if I'm going to do them, I have to have a, a very set idea of what's happening when and who's doing what or else it's very easy to get lost. And then my players are going to end up feeling lost because I'm feeling lost. Um, so we'll see what happens with those. But as far as games, um, growing up, I was pretty much very much storyteller, probably like 80% storyteller, 90% storyteller even. Um, and when I got to college, my college game group was always going on sidetracks. And uh, it happened all the time. This was the group I was playing with, you know, three to six nights a week. Um, and so we were constantly keeping our, our plots flexible to the point where they would change things all the time. They'd blow up their own base to change the future. They would um, meet a bunch of bad guys, turn them into children, and adopt them. Um, that sort of thing. And so what I had planned was often going off the deep end. Um, sometimes they would even write, write their own whole plots in their head about what was going on. It turned out to be 100% wrong. But I ran with them sometimes. Um, but my post-college group was a bit more plot-oriented. Um, and I had to adjust back to that, where they wanted to have very set adventures, uh, pretty much straightforward. Um, you know, they wanted to have a, a, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. This is our goal. We're going to gather treasure or steal a spaceship, whatever. Um, and, uh, I read a lot more modules that way when Pathfinder came out. I read a lot of the Pathfinder stuff, but even then I was often throwing chunks of it away and adapting that. 
Um, when it came to Buffalo, um, I've got a mixture. I've had Buffalo Group are much more into the facilitated adventures. Um, what I find is interesting is that I've got my, the group that I had before the one I'm with now was a mix of storyteller and facilitators in the same group. And that was more difficult to run for a lot of time because you had some players that wanted things laid out very structured in front of them and other players that wanted to freeform everything and wanted to constantly go off on side quests. And it was not a case of um, struggling with the GM as much as it was oftentimes the group itself was struggling with their own goals and what they wanted to do. Uh, one group wanted to hang out in town and talk to the bartender, and the other group just wanted to go into the dungeon and get treasure. And that's something that obviously you have to adjust for. Um, early on, I think the thing that got me going from that 80-90% into something a little more facilitating was a group of books from the 80s called The Companions. There were a bunch of modules, The Curse on Ferris, The Street of Gems. And it was the first group of adventuring books I ever saw that at the beginning of the adventure, they had a timeline that's saying, this is what happened before the players came to town. This is what's going to happen at these times in the town, unless the players do something else. So if your players decide to run off and do this, this is what happens in the background. So when they come back, you know what's going on ahead of time. And then they talked about how to plot around that. And also what to do if the players skip certain plots, because there were three major like encounter areas and events and things that were supposed to happen, like... um Goblins come and poison the beekeeper's bees so that when the goblins attack, the bees don't defend them. If the players happen to be there, let them stop the goblin. Let them keep the goblins from poisoning. They, they actively encourage you as a GM that if the players start to foil your plot, let them. Here's what's going to happen otherwise, but let them do that. And, uh, for me, it was an eye opener because I thought, oh my God, I can, I'm actually allowed to not follow the plot. Um, it took a long time to make that more reasonable, but that's what it was. So it's not just the groups, it was the games that people I played with. Um, also, if you get your hands on the Companions books, they are very 80s in their design. But every adventure is written with the idea that you can play the six modules out of order, even though they're all part of the same plot. And there's a lot of, this is what's going on in the background, this is what your players are doing. So kind of fun. So uh, last thing I would say is the one thing I learned from playing with more modern players is... Um, if you have information to give, don't try to force the players to the person that has it. Just make sure that whoever they talk to gives them the information they need to keep the plot moving mm-hmm. and let it go from there. Doesn't matter if they're supposed to get it from the bartender. If they go to the temple, the temple guy knows the same rumor. Give it to him. Uh, I've seen way too many adventures written that if the players don't talk to this one person, they don't get the information they need to have. <laughs> we can do all show that's, on that. That's the yeah. classic the clue about, yeah. is going to be found. Yep. Where the clue's going to be found, we don't know yet, but it's going to be found because they need it. <laughs> you know what, Bob? Put a pin in that. Clues. Clues and mystery. We should do an adventure. Uh, we should do a show on how to do decent clues and mystery adventures. Ding. Ding. There we go. And on that I'll note, just, Bob. Yeah. Go ahead. So, um, I, I've had my, my growth as a role player, um, is almost in, to- in some total encompassed in the, amount of time that I've been playing with Phil because that's where the that's where the variety started to come in that's where the different ideas and different um, thought processes started to come in and different stuff like that prior to Phil it was your classic old school D&D stuff with the same type of people that that had the same type of mentality Um, and there wasn't a lot of variation Um, and then 
I started hanging out with Phil, and like right out of the gate, the first game that we picked up to get ready to run was Castle Falkenstein. I, oh, I'm very nice. much your I'm very much the weird uncle, right? Who shows up yeah. at the family reunion, right? Like, look what I got, kids. Castle Falkenstein is about as far from the traditional D and D that I was playing mm-hmm. prior to that as you can get at that time. Um, and we never got it off the ground, unfortunately. Um, it'd be interesting to see where we would have gone with it um, if if it had actually gone anywhere. We, yeah, we did some prep, and then I don't, I don't remember what happened. Was somebody? What is it? Was that when we we decided to add in uh, Mike and and? No, we and no. Or? I don't know why. What made us switch? But we were gonna play it. Then we didn't play it. So instead, we ran a one shot of a little game called the Whispering Vault. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and we kind of went off that way. <laughs> and then we, uh, yeah, and then, and then after we got through Whispering Vault, I was like, you know what game you guys might like? Is this game Amber? <laughs> and that was that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, um, that, that's, that's where, especially over the last 10 years, my growth as a, a player and a GM, um, even though I haven't GM'd a lot, um, I've learned a lot from all of the people and and uh, and exposure that I've had. But the the as these two have already said, um, the the different things that you're going to play, um, all of that stuff goes into the mix and changes your perceptions. And really, the most the most compelling thing for me was the. Um, the narrative style of game. When we started playing the more narrative style of game where players had a lot more agency and the GM didn't have as much plot figured out and things could go just about anywhere, that really opened my eyes to true storytelling at the table, which is kind of a a, a contradiction because storytelling from the perspective of the overall goal of the of the of the session of sitting down at the table. What are you doing? You're there to tell a story, but collaborative story, collaborative, I think is, that's the key word. Um, so yeah, it's, um, the, the narrative style games with high player agency really have been the ones that had the most impact Mm -hmm. on me. And then side, you know, adjacent to that kind of a one B, um, the people that I've been playing with who, um, really leaned into those games or introduced me to those games. Um, that's the other part of that equation. So um, that that's where all that comes from for me. As a, uh, as a point of reference, you and I have, you and I are in the middle of our 27th year of gaming. Sounds about right. 20, 2024 will be 30 years we've gamed together. So, yeah. So when Bob and I like when when Bob and I have like a number of overlapping stories and experiences, it's because literally I have gamed more with Bob um, than I have gamed with anyone else in my entire life. Um, So, yes, I have so many shared stories and experiences because so much of my gaming has been um, uh, with Bob. Like I met you almost I, I met you within a month of moving to Buffalo. Um, and everyone else in that gaming group, that initial gaming group is gone. <laughs> Although Jim's back. Now. Jim's back. Yeah. Jim, yeah, Jim was, but Jim was gone for like 20 years yep. and came back. Like 
yeah so yeah so i there there's so many stories where bob and i overlap each other because literally we were both there <laughs> that's, that's that's the way it is yeah oh yeah. man i know that's wild isn't it? i was just sitting here doing the pocket math as i was thinking about it i'm like oh <laughs> man like freaking time like, 2024 will be 30 years that we've known each other. Yeah, here's hoping for another 27 more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or digital uploading. Yeah. <laughs> we shall game forever. They'll just put us in. They'll just put stacks in us. There you go. I'm all for it. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that covers the end of that question. So. Uh yeah, that's our expanded look at the Gnome Stew article I wrote on storytellers and facilitators. We hope this was helpful and gives you some insight into what brings you enjoyment when you're running games. Yeah, and now, one more trip into the chat room before we hit the conversation <laughs> corner. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to I have to go to this because I saw the term maximum Gygax cross through. <laughs> yeah. So Jared, um, in his attempt to not interact with the chat room tonight, <laughs> has been interacting, <laughs> which is, you know, it's good. Um, he said, Gygaxian plotting, here's a sandwich. 20 rooms later, if they don't have the sandwich, they can't find the secret door with the lock. 20 rooms later, this is a TPK. Too bad you didn't figure out the sandwich puzzle. Yeah. That's... <laughs> that, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The key to maximum Gygax, the maximum Gygax, he says, is that you don't even tell the GM reading the adventure that the sandwich is important. Which yeah, is yeah, so exactly. true of those old school modules. Oh, yeah. You get all the way through and you're like, oh shit, they needed the sandwich? Yep. Yeah, if you if you didn't prep those things and like go back yeah. and like find it and highlight it or something, uh-huh. oh yeah, you just like you screwed yourself. Like if you were one like as a kid, like sometimes I would only read like, you know, oh, they're on level one. So I just read the level one portion of the adventure. Yep. Then you get to level four and realize, yes, that they forgot the sandwich on level one. And you're just like, oh, that's when I started learning. Like, you know what? This sandwich is now on level four. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like, that's where you, that's where you got to turn. Because if you don't do that, then the whole thing falls apart. It's like, oh, yeah, sandwich is not level one. It's not four. There it is. We'll slide it right over there. Uh, <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, and again, it goes to the same thing about like why so many of us were storyteller GMs was like, that's also how adventures are produced, right? Adventures like 80s adventures were like written like were not only written like that, but they were written in this kind of very um, storyteller. Like it didn't say like, let the players figure out how, you know, like let the players decide who they're going to talk to and then give them these pieces of information. They would literally be like, if you did not talk to if you did not talk to the kid in the store who was trying to steal candy, you mm-hmm. cannot have this piece of information. Yep. Yeah. And that's how I mean, you when you're when you are first learning to role play, you learn by mimicking, which is why yep. it's awesome that people today when they're learning to like role play or GM, like can go watch streams and listen to APs and yep. like if I mean I was in a vacuum. There were like two other guys in my group that GM'd and they didn't like GMing. They just made me do it. So I was like my own echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's the idea that um, so much of the game was was also designed randomly. There were so much of it was just you you rolled randomly if it was in rooms. And so 
not only did you have a fourth story, but the fourth story often was completely random because even the designer had no idea what was actually going to be going on from point A to point B. Also, the craft was new, and it honestly at times just wasn't as good. Like, mm-hmm. just like we weren't. I mean, it's like watching seventies. It's like watching seventies TV shows, right? Like they're they're just not as tight or as good as modern TV shows because it was new and, and, and they were just, they were fumbling their way through the medium, which is why like today, like we're much better at these things. Um, It's why I often resist the nostalgia to play older games because almost every time it's nostalgia, not the game that I'm excited about, which is why I like, which is why I like, um, which is why I like when somebody takes an older game and modernizes it right mm-hmm. so like for instance the twilight 2000 um that was a game that i thought was a awesome premise i literally bounced off the rules because i was in sixth grade and if you tried to read those GD- those um gdw rules in sixth grade it was literally impenetrable and now it gets picked up by um uh free league and i'm like shit yeah i'm playing this game like yeah. like like this is the concept i loved married with good modern game mechanics yep i I can make some shit happen now yeah um and just like that tmnt the um oh god that kickstarter like oh i'm in love with this this um with this kickstarter that i've been following yeah because it's just it's a it's modernizing tmnt which the palladium system was agonizing and like if i could just play mutant animals but in a slicker system like i'm in baby yep like I'm in. You know what that makes me want to do? Yeah, what is it? It makes me want to go back to witchcraft, take another oh. deep, hard look at the mechanics of witchcraft, and see if there's a way to to pull those up into the 21st century. Really, what you want to figure out is, is the witchcraft game, how compatible is it with um, the Great American Witch? Like, do you even have to do any work? Like, <laughs> like... Did did Christopher Gray already solve that problem when we just haven't looked yet? That is entirely possible. Because that but I game, agree. But I agree with you, right? Like yeah. I for a '90s game, um, what was it? CJ was it? CJ 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 Corella, um, Eden Publishing. Eden Publishing, yeah. Oh, I fucking I fucking love fucking love that that game. Witchcraft is the craft like yeah. role-playing game like there were a lot of things about that that i really enjoyed and oh i did too i i think the nostalgia factor would would still be high but i think there's some of it that would still hold up i think that i think that game is in better shape than yes i yeah. agree i think that game is in decent shape it i it would still feel very 90s as in you know pass fail results no pet no fail forward or whatever but the mechanics for magic were fun. Yeah. Like the building up of essence and then casting it out and the different traditions of magic or it's psionic. Like, yeah. I, like it's more playable than not playable. Oh, you bastard. That, that, that may be a Don't... side, a side, uh, evening for me is looking at great American witch and, and witchcraft and just, 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 you know, just, just see the, how much yeah. it doesn't line up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we should probably slide ourselves into the conversation corner now and get into a little more of the uh, the, the loose convo. Mm-hmm. Let me do the thing with the button and the stuff. I really like having a sound bar. <laughs> yeah, right? 
All right, conversation corner. Here we go. So as Phil mentioned, um, we had our session zero for iHunt, which um, did not go the way I expected it to go. Um, not like like totally off the rails or anything like that. It's just I I did not expect uh, my two compatriots to be like, oh yeah, I'm like a total noob at this, and I've never been out there hunting. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I came up with a concept of someone who's a survivor um, <laughs> and has been out there in the streets going it alone for a while and uh, and and is kind of savvy. So um, I'll be running the show and trying not to get these two kids killed. <laughs> Although one of them is not really a kid. He's older than me. <laughs> Tony is, uh, is playing an older guy, if I yes. recall correctly. Um, but yeah, this is, um, is going to be one of those games... Um, it, it, um, I kind of had missed playing fate myself as Phil's like, you know, Oh man, I fucking love fate. Uh It's like, we go away from it and then we slide back over to fate for something. And we're like, Oh man, why are we not playing fate? (laughs) I love this game. And with playing, uh, every other Friday, uh, Dresden files accelerated. Um, it reminded me of certain things and, uh, um, and I kind of got back into the groove of like, you know, oh, like this past game of Dresden. Um, I looked at Chris on the screen and I said, hey, Chris, um, before we go into that, I'm self-compelling my trouble right now. The supernatural always finds me. And I said, oh. take that and yeah. do with it what you will. I'm taking my fate point. <laughs> yes. And he's like, oh, he's like, thank you. <laughs> he's like, I have I, no idea what I'm going to do with that yet, but I will in a minute. <laughs> Uh-huh. So I'm uh, like, so Phil, get ready. Cause <laughs> I love it. I love it. Right. And, and you're going to have a new, um, uh, what's called, you have a, you have a new one too. You have the imperil. Yes. I can which imperil is a, it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, so, that's a new move. That's it's going to uh, be, it's going to be interesting. So, um, yeah, very much looking forward to my, to my Peter Parker with the serial numbers filed off. <laughs> I love it. I it went, as soon as you said it, I, I was like, all I can picture is this dude like in some like like basement with a with, like a heavy bag, like punching the shit out of it, like flashback into like watching Uncle Ben get eaten by zombies in like, you know, yeah. on, you know, like in the subway or something and just being, you know, like and then like he's got the wrist, like the forearm wraps and he's like, I got to go do this, like picks yeah. up his baseball bat and heads out the door. It's, it, it gets better than that, Phil, because prior to what we decided on at the end of the, the most recent of the, of the session zero, I decided that, um, that it was a werewolf that killed Uncle Ron. Oh, <laughs> so right out of the gate, we're going to have some drama. Oh, yeah, he's dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. I felt I like know. he was dead, but <laughs> we'll get there. Who knows? Oh, Jersey werewolves, man. Jersey werewolves. Worst. These fucking guys over here. I know you guys picked a good city too. We were um the default for the game is in this fictional um West Coast city, but we were all like, Yeah, none of us have any real connections to the West yeah. Coast. I mean, we're like we've made up shit before for, for towns and stuff like that. And it's like, but it's like if we're gonna go with a town that exists. I think San Gennaro actually exists. No, no, I think it's fictional. You think it's fictional? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's fictional. I could have sworn it was a San Gennaro. Jared, I think Jared read the Jared read the I Hunt for the review. I'm pretty sure San Gennaro is yeah. fake. But um, be that as it may, what we 
have always had success with, especially with this particular group of Phil, me, Tony, and Glenn, is regardless of whether we have a, a fictional town or a real town, we fictionalize it enough for the game that we make it our version of the town and then we go and we have connections to it and we and, and we're good to go. But when somebody was talking about like, oh, let's do like Pittsburgh or whatever like that, and I forget who it was, it was Glenn or Tony said something about Philly because I had stepped away to use the bathroom. And yeah. I come back and I'm like, did somebody just say Philly? And I'm like, are we going to fuck around and find out? <laughs> yes. I'm like, all right, I, well, I said, you know, Gritty's a monster then. <laughs> I'm literally putting the aspect fuck around and find out as like uh-huh. as like one of the setting aspects. Yeah. So, yeah, yes. that's that that game is going to be a hoot. I can tell already. Um, yeah, I like the um, it, so I, I like it. It's a good mix. It's a rough it, it, it's a rough city. It's in the tri-state area and it has a lot of colonial history. So like the vampire scene for um, Philly is going to like have some deep fucking roots, like constitutional signers and shit like that. And yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing some research. It, it's actually one of the things I dig about um, when we, when we play in cities is that I will go do a bunch of research on a city, like learn its neighborhoods and some yeah. of its history and stuff. And we were going to do a game we wound up not playing it. We were going to do a game in Sao Paulo and I like learned yep. a ton of shit about Sao, Sao Paulo. And I was like, first of all, the city's fucking cool as hell, except yeah. for driving in it. It's like a fucking nightmare to drive in. Sao Paulo has more helicopters, uh, more helicopter taxis than any other, <laughs> yeah. um, any other city in the, in the world. Um, but yeah, so I love, I love it. I love it. And Philly was just like the right level of, um, big city, I mean, but like, Grittiness, Urban I think, is the and grittiness and <laughs> literally, and yeah, yeah. It just yeah, it's gonna be, a, it's gonna be. A, and the last thing I'll say about I Hunt, um, one of the other uh, aspects that you have is your your dream, your vision board, and it's yes. the thing that you're aspiring to, to to try and get to. And so, based on my Peter Parker analogy, I'm living with my aunt Sue, helping her pay for rent and for her medication and stuff like that because now that uncle uncle ron is gone she doesn't have him to help her out so it falls on me and so my dream is to get us to a better place so my my vision board aspect is moving on up like george and like george and wheezy which 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 the youngins didn't get but i was like i as soon as i saw it i busted out laughing i'm like i totally understand this i'm like i'm totally uh, jefferson's this thing right up here Mm -hmm. yes so so that's i hunt um another thing that i did um every once in a while when i want to uh i like to to watch something while i'm having meals but i don't like to watch anything that i need to focus on to pay super close attention to like, I will not watch a WandaVision episode while I'm having breakfast or lunch or dinner. Like, that's not, that's not meal vision. That's, that's focus vision. That's, that's yeah. something I got to pay attention to. So I'll pick, I'll pick things like, you know, like, like the Avatar stuff, Legend of Korra, that's usually lunch, um, that kind of thing. But there's a series, a documentary series on Disney Plus called Marvel 616. Which I previously mentioned, they had a, the first episode is all about the Spider-Man from Japan, the the Japanese Spider-Man. It's a wacky episode, a lot of interesting information in there. Um, the fourth episode, I want to say, 
It's called Lost and Found, and it's a documentary that's made by this comedian who basically the the gist of it, it's like a it's like a like a fake like he's making a documentary of his failed attempt to pitch a show to Disney Plus. And basically what it is is he's going in he wants to do a new show with a Marvel property and they tell him to go for the, the not the low hanging fruit of the more common characters go find somebody from the archives you know somebody that people may not remember or somebody that didn't get a lot of play and so he goes through and I'm sure some of the characters that were described during the course of this this uh, episode were made up but there's a lot of characters that are actual Marvel characters that are little known characters that were like they showed up here they showed up there and then they disappeared and what he settles on is a team called brute force which is a group of five animals that this scientist equips with cybernetic and, and robotic uh, uh, attachments that give them verbi- verbal sentience and like all, like they're able to like think and and articulate and and they go off and they start doing like this um, like eco um, police kind of a thing where they go fight the bad guys that are like polluting the planet and they have this throwdown with the bad guys group of enhanced animals and it's wacky as hell (laughs) but it's like listening to them talk about some of these old characters and it's like i know that character um but when he when he mentioned brute force i'm like i gotta find out if this is real or if they made this part up and it's a real four issue series from 1990 (laughs) and it was um it was one of those ideas where um, companies were coming in and they're like, we want to do, we want to do a comic book to try and drive toy sales because of like transformers and different stuff like that. So they came up with the idea of these, these eco warriors and it was terrible, but hilarious. Um, and the, the process by which this comedian goes through his, his, his path trying to get this into a pitch form. He goes to this animation company to like, I want you to do some animation for me to, to spotlight these characters so that I can use it in my pitch. And, uh, and he hands him a piece of paper with a number on it. He's like, what can I get for this? And they're like, I don't know, like two minutes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's working on like zero budget. It's just a funny episode, but the characters that are in the episode, hysterical. <laughs> <clears throat> There's also another one right before that, which is focusing on two artists from different parts of the world, uh, one from Spain and one from, uh, I want to say, um, Brazil. Um, and they, they're, it's like all about their path from being freelance artists to becoming comic artists for Marvel. And the characters are the ones drawing uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. The other one's drawing Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Um mm-hmm. It's a very good, very good episode and very interesting. Um, and then finally, of course, I'm chomping at the bit for the last episode of WandaVision on Friday. I'm just like, episode eight was just like mind blowing. So looking forward to that and ready to go. Enough yeah. about me, Jerry. Oh, a bunch of little things. Um, obviously I watched Willy's Wonderland. Uh, the same evening I watched a Brightburn, which, um, is a kind of a superhero horror movie. Um, it was written by the Gunn Brothers. 
the two brothers of James Gunn, the Guardians of the Galaxy, and Slither, and a bunch of other things. And when you watch the movie, you can obviously tell it was written for him, and then somebody else directed it. It's even got like like a lot of his standees, like uh, Elizabeth Banks is in it, and Michael Rooker. The premise is basically, what if Superman landed and his parents weren't as good at raising him as the Kent family? Oh, I've seen the previews for this. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's uh, it could have used a slightly bigger budget and better directing, but it's a good movie. It's fun. It's terrifying. I mean, twelve year old with Superman's powers are is terrifying. Sure. Um, and the real payoff, unfortunately, comes during the credits at the very end, which I won't ruin. But uh, the credits set up the possibility of a sequel that could be very interesting. Um, hmm. But it, it was it was fun. It's a good just again. It's a put it on in the background while you're doing something because there's a lot of stuff that you're kind of watching stuff go on in the background. Um, we had our our first full session of Kids on Room with GM Glenn Seidler this weekend. Um, it's a lot of fun. We're playing. Um, Obviously, teenagers in a magical college, and um, one of the players is playing a teacher, and the rest of us are playing kind of shenanigan students who are trying to figure out mystery. And um, these are the same mechanics as kids on bikes. And uh, look, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, I'll just say, WandaVision was great, and let that slide past uh, <laughs> because don't, you can't talk about it. The one that surprised me this week was Superman and Lois. The first episode of Superman and Lois dropped this week. And um, I'm not a big fan of I, I hated the Lois and Clark with Terry Hatcher thing. And I've never been a really big fan of the entire Superman Lois relationship up until they finally got things in like the Bruce Tim era. This was really good. Just the first couple of minutes of it uh, established Superman as <coughs> kind of the Superman we want. Uh, at least I want the, the good natured hero, um, not super violent, always trying to come up with, with solutions. Um, establishing the premise and then the story is pretty good. It's a lot of fun. Um, this is a Lois who was in love with Clark Kent, who just happens to be Superman as a, instead of kind of the seventies and eighties Lois Lane we had, which was she's in love with Superman and Clark Kent just has to be somebody she has to put up with kind of thing. <laughs> and it's really well done. And they, they made both characters very strong and, uh, empowered. And I'm looking forward to it as a series. Plus there's a little bit of action. Um, if you get a chance, you can watch the first episode for free. And uh, I've not been a huge fan of the DC TV stuff. I guess I just never got sunk into the DC TV series the way some people have. This one's going to help me in, I think. Um, it might get me to watch a lot more of the other ones. Um, and uh, watch more of Lovecraft Country. Uh, it's a great social commentary, but it needs more Lovecraft. That's all I'll say. <laughs> and uh, lastly, we did uh, our Savage Worlds game this weekend, uh, which is our Savage Eberron, um, which is much more of a storyteller than facilitator game. Um, but, uh, we had two of the player characters finally had their first date and it was a big chunk of it, um, which was a lot of fun to watch with, uh, comments during the game of, well, now you've seen how I am on a first date kind of thing, <laughs> where, uh, basically, uh, Chris's character and Spitty's character have been kind of meet-cuting for the last couple of, uh, couple of adventures and kind of had a foiled, um, a foiled not date date when, uh, Bridget's, uh, halfling decided to crash the, uh, the date. This time they actually went off on their own and we had a, about an hour session of them kind of fumbling around with first date thing and, and delving into all their character flaws and revealing a lot about the characters' pasts and histories. It's a really good role playing situation. And I liked the idea of the date as a way to have players reveal, um, things about each other by asking questions that you would ask on a first date. So you know, what was your family life like growing up? You know, what did you do for fun? What did you do during the war? Why are you here in town? That kind of stuff that 
if you just sat there at the table and had people kind of rattle off those ideas would be boring. But in the case of a date setting, having them ask those questions really revealed a lot about the players and um, are the characters and, and just gave a lot. I'm really happy with it. So uh, that's where I'll go. I just had a, it was a fun, fun week with a lot of little, little neat things. If you like uh, not quite horror movies, I would still recommend Brightburn and Willie's Wonderland. They're not great, but they're a lot of fun. So, Phil? Yeah, a um, couple things. Uh, so, yeah, so I went and got my vaccine um, out in uh, Syracuse. So I made a day of it yesterday. Like yeah. I um, actually made a full day of it, thanks to Jerry. Uh, I drove out and hit Long John Silver's in Batavia. How was it? Uh, it was pretty good. Um, you know what I've learned is it's perfectly fine Long John Silver's, but I also live in Buffalo. So like getting a good fish fry, ah. <laughs> like at this time of the year is a piece of cake. So while it was delicious and I enjoyed it, um, I actually had a better fish fry at, um, from, um, it's Greek to me. Oh yeah. Like their fish fry was delicious last week and I'm probably going to have it again this week. But anyway, I hit that. Then I went to, um, the vaccination site, uh, which was great. Um, it's being run by the, um, national guard and it is, uh, very efficient. I think I was in there a total of an hour. Um, from the time I walked in the door to the time I was cleared to leave after my 15 minute wait, everybody was very nice. Uh, as I'm waiting online, Buffalo represents, I look over and, you know, they had us in one of those, like, you know, uh, serpentine cues. I look over and there's a dude standing there in his tiger striped Buffalo bill Zumba pants, right? Mm -hmm. Like the full on pants. He's got the Buffalo Bills jacket and he's got the um, striped face mask with a Buffalo Bills helmet on it. And I'm just like, <laughs> represent. Like, just, <laughs> I see, I see you, Buffalo. <laughs> I see you in the line. I know you. Um, so anyway, it was fine. Um, so, yeah, that was exciting. Um, my arm is still sore. It's actually a lot less sore. It was um it's better. I woke up. I woke up this morning with it, and I was like, "Ah, this arm sucks." Now I have two arms that suck. Um, so, um, but it is actually by this point in the day, like much better. And I didn't want to take anything for it because I really want my immune system. Like, I don't want to cut down any inflammation or anything. Like, let this thing rock. Um, I need this vaccine to take. <laughs> uh, so I did that. Um, I've been watching a lot of Enterprise. I finished season two. Um. That's a way to end a season. That's definitely a season. Uh, that's definitely a season oh, finale. Right. Season two. E finale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll make sense for people who've seen uh, Enterprise before. Um, so that was good. Um, WandaVision is amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will say, without any spoilers, there is a one minute video of my favorite song from WandaVision. <laughs> on YouTube. Yep. Uh, and, which is, and, and that song is majorly a spoiler. So. Yes, it's majorly a spoiler. So if you if yeah. you've watched WandaVision, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I will warn people who haven't watched WandaVision. Um, it is also becoming a meme. Um, there are two memes that are emerging from stills from WandaVision about that particular character, um, yes. which are great memes but they are going to start to spoil some stuff about the show if you haven't seen it yet. Um, so I'm very excited, very excited for WandaVision. Uh, today, I was looking for something different to watch at lunchtime. Um, so I um, went and started re-watching a TV show from CBS called Jericho. 
I don't know if you guys remember Jericho, um, but it's about this little town in Kansas. Um, after a series of nuclear devices go off and wipe out a bunch of cities in the U.S., um, it's uh, uh, it was a CBS TV show. It actually got canceled after season one, and the fans went so berserk that CBS um, was forced to do seven episodes in season two to wrap the story up because people were so pissed. Um, and I liked it a lot, so I've I've gone back and started watching it. So so it was I I, I actually have the first season on DVD and have and never actually got around to watching it because I didn't know how it was. So yeah, I I enjoyed it. It is very much cool. a network TV show, but it's <laughs> got um a nice um if you like disaster, post apocalypse, and conspiracies like I do, um it's a wonderful convergence of those things. Um. I thought it was I thought the series was quite good and it goes like full season. It is a 26 episode first season. And then CBS was like, eh, we're done. And over the summer, if I remember correctly, and I have to go look it up online, there was like a campaign where people kept sending peanuts to yep. CBS. They were mailing literal peanuts to CBS headquarters. Yeah. And um, and I forget where it comes from, but it, it's a famous quote like nuts to that or something. It was like from a famous general and um, CBS capitulated and they were just like, okay, fine. We'll go and film some more of the show. And I think there's like seven more episodes in season two, um, which was good. Cause I think then they like helped tie off the, the show, but I started rewatching it again. And um, as soon as I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, right. The first time I watched this, I wanted it to be a role-playing game. It hasn't changed. Like I'm still like, oh Yeah. This would make a fantastic Twilight 2000 alternate setting or something. That's cool. So uh, I watched that and I also started watching. There's a um, new uh, I think there's like six episodes of it. There's a samurai um, show that showed up on Netflix and I don't remember the full name of it, but I'm like four or five episodes into that. And that's really good. It's like a history of the Sengoku period in the 1500s. And it's um, it's little bits of drama interspersed with historians talking about uh, various battles and various um, uh, generals and other players during that time. It, it's a piece of history that I absolutely love. Um, yeah, it's called Age of Samurai Battle for Japan. That's it. If I had ever, if I, if I had not been a biologist and had wound up somehow as a history major, that would be the piece of history I would have studied. I'd like absolutely love um, that period of uh, uh, that period of time. Uh, so yeah, so it, it is also very good. It is super bloody though. I will tell you like the little bits that they intersperse are like super graphically violent. Um, but the history part is actually really good. And they have like a number of historians that go through and talk about the different, um, the different historical uh, figures of those times. I haven't really done much else. Um, I've like watched a bunch of stuff. That's it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> we're going to play the sprawl this week. So that's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's all I got for now. That's good. I'm good. All right. I will say one more thing before we jump into the, uh, the closing, um, because it just occurred to me and I just, I'll throw it out there real quick. Fans of the, uh, tales of Arcadia troll hunters, uh, three below and wizards from Guillermo del Toro on Netflix. Um, there is a fourth entry into that series called Troll Hunters Rise of the Titans. To the best of my knowledge, it is a single film that has everybody in it 
from all three previous shows, and it's like the big climactic ending to the whole saga. Um, and that's supposed to be coming out in like May or July or something like that. Um, so I'm jonesing for that because that, that stuff was really good. Okay. That being said, it is time for the Patreon shoutouts. Thank you to everyone for being our patron, especially in this instance, Dan Simons, David Walker, Drew Smith, secret weapon of the show, Glenn Seiler, table mate in our iHunt game, Jason Pinella, Jason Pitt, Gene Lorbear, Jeff Stevens, Jim Morrison, and Joe Rosso. Thank you for patronizing us, and thanks to everyone for listening tonight. If you are free on Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. the Queen's time, you're welcome. Come join us live on Twitch, where you can chat with other awesome listeners in the chat room for life and ask us the occasional question. If you cannot make it a live show, check out our podcast each week, wherever you get your podcast. And take a listen to some of the other shows from the Mystery Mark Network, such as Mastering Dungeons, Phone Stone Obsidian, <clears throat> The FM Gamers, Panis Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Jagu Hustle, The Lounge, Bonus Experience, and Back Episodes of She's Super Geek. You can and should also check out our sibling podcast, Tabletop Bellhop, The Knights of the Night, and the always amazing Gaming and BS. After you have prepped an intricate story, and before you ask the players what they're going to do next, leave us some feedback. You can always reach us via email at mmp at misdirectedmark.com. Hit us up on Twitter. The show in the network is at misdirectedmark. He is Robert M. Everson. He is GM Gerrymander, and I am DNA Phil. If you like what we do here and on the other shows in the Misdirected Mark Network, you can support our Patreon campaigns. MMP, Mastering Dungeons, and Panda Stocking Games are at patreon.com slash MMP. Zhang Hu Hustle is at patreon.com slash Zhang Hu Hustle. And Bonus Experience is at patreon.com slash bonus experience. Patrons of MMP, Mastering Dungeons, and Panda Stocking Games get access to the after show, pre-production show notes, musical parodies, the Bamboo Lounge, and other special releases. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Design. Mic drop. We out. Thank you.